0: Let's pray, shall we? Uh, Father, thank you for this wonderful family and being able to joke around together uh, in love. And I pray you open your word to us, open this book of Hosea to us, help us to apply it to our lives and see ourselves in it. And uh, we, we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, yeah, that was kind of a strange scripture reading. And, uh, you know, I, I perp- we purposefully, you know, started kind of in the middle of the story with that reading. and I'm going to kind of backfill throughout the sermon, but if Hosea is about anything, um, it is about a wedding. It's about a marriage, and uh, that got me thinking this week about weddings, and uh, when you're a pastor, one of the cool things you get to do is be a part of a lot of weddings, Um, and I don't know about you, but I love weddings, and uh, it's one of my softer parts of me, and um, it's just this really powerful moment that you get to be a part of when you attend a wedding, right? Between A union between these two people, between these two families uh, that are joining together for life. And it's, it's incredible to watch if you've ever seen one. But uh, one of the strangest things about weddings at the same time, and if you've ever been in a wedding or you've been behind the scenes in a wedding, you know this, is, is this, this contrast between the planning phase of the wedding and the actual ceremony itself. And let me explain what I mean. Because for the last few days and hours before a wedding, you will never find a more stressed out or exhausted group of people um, running this wedding. Right? Everyone's running around uh, like with chickens with their head cut off, and it feels like there's no way you're going to get this thing pulled off. And uh, the fl- you know what, whatever it is, the flowers are messed up, or the reception site isn't ready, or your hair's ruined, or you know the caterer forgets, or something. I mean, whatever it is. It feels like there's basically this perpetual crisis right up until the, the wedding ceremony itself. At least that's how it felt at my wedding. Some of you out there are like, man, that was, that was really rough for you. <laughs> but um, here's, the, here's the really crazy part, though, is that once the ceremony starts, everything changes. People settle down. And suddenly, it's not about the plans or the food or the party favors or anything. It's about the bride. And when the bride enters the room, uh, all that stress melts away and everyone, it seems like, collectively remembers, oh yeah, that's why we did all this work. It was for this moment right here. And without fail, in my experience, every time the room just lights up when the bride starts walking down the aisle and the clarity and the simplicity and the transcendence of that moment, right, when when the bride and the bridegroom first see each other. There's something about it that always moves us, it always does. doesn't matter how many weddings you've been to, that moment is always powerful. And the Christian faith has always had an explanation for why that is, because you see, according to the Bible, a wedding is not simply a ceremony between two people who love each other. It's a picture, it's a summary of the entire history of the universe, Because the story of our world and the story of our individual lives, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, is really the story of a husband who loves his bride. It's a marriage between God and his creation, between God and his people. And no book of the Bible, no book of the Bible captures this better, this idea of God's marriage to his people in all its complexity and all of its beauty, better than the book of Hosea. And frankly, we must hear Hosea's message if we ever want to understand what, what the Bible, what the, everything else the Bible says about how we're supposed to relate to God. We can never fully understand the way God feels about us until we understand that he wants to be married to us. So there are three essential truths that Hosea's life we're going we're to walk through this morning that we, we must know about our, about our relationship with God And literally, like I said, Hosea's life, not simply his words, but his life, communicates these truths. And here they are. Here's where we're going this morning. First, our relationship with God is like a marriage. Second, our relationship with God is like a broken marriage. And third, God heals our broken marriage. Uh, So, first, our relationship with God, this fundamental truth of the Bible, is like a marriage. And if you haven't already, turn to the book of Hosea. It is a little hard to find. Um, if you get to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel and Daniel, just keep turning to the right. It's the first book after Daniel. Turn to Hosea chapter 1. And just a few words as you're turning there about uh, the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in the 8th century B.C. in the land of Israel. And he, so he was actually a prophet before Daniel, who is, the, who is who we looked at last week. And that's one of the more confusing parts about our English Old Testaments is that they don't move in. The prophets don't move in chronological order. So Hosea is preaching before Daniel at a time in the kingdom of Israel when the kingdom was split into two before the exile to Babylon. Now if you were a part of our history series, which was like, it feels like a year ago now, but um, when we talked about the history of Israel, we said there was this moment where the kingdom of Israel split into two, and Israel kept its name, the land it was the kingdom to the north, And Judah was the kingdom to the south. And Hosea is a prophet to Israel in the north. That's where he lives. And his call to be a prophet is pretty unique compared to the the rest of the prophets. Because usually when God calls a prophet, uh, he says something like, Go and tell your people X. Whether that's, you know, judgment's coming, or a nation's going to invade, or stop oppressing the poor. I mean, whatever that is, he says, Go and tell these people this. But with Hosea, it says... In verse 2 of chapter 1, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, take to yourself a wife. Stop there. God says, go get married. That's how he calls Hosea. And as nice as that maybe sounds for Hosea, who probably wanted to get married anyway, um, it doesn't seem particularly prophetic or meaningful until you get to chapter 3, verse 1, where God explains why Hosea is commanded to do this. And there God says, go love a woman Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. God is saying, Hosea, go get married, because that is a picture of my relationship with my people. I am Israel's husband. And here we see this theme developing, we've touched on it, that develops throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. And the theme is this God does not simply rule over his people, Israel, he is not just a king over his people, he is a husband who desires to be married to us. So the first thing God teaches us through Hosea is that we cannot understand our relationship with him simply as our king or simply as our shepherd or simply as our refuge or even simply as our father. As biblical and as important as those images are, we cannot fully understand the way God feels about us and the way until we understand until we understand him not simply as our sovereign or our creator or even our savior but as our husband, as our spouse. In Hosea, I'm sorry, that's, that's why the prophet Isaiah can say things like this in chapter 54 of his book. He says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, says your God. So in Hosea, God is beginning to say through the very life of the prophet that what he is after is not simply obedience but intimacy he doesn't just want us to think a certain way about him but to feel a certain way about him the way a wife does for a husband and he doesn't just want, us, he doesn't just want to be one relationship in our lives he, a one friendship among many he wants to be the relationship in our lives in other words God as powerful as he is as transcendent as he is and as bizarre as it sounds is not simply after our allegiance as his people he's after our love because if you think about it, you have to obey your king. You have to obey your king. You don't disobey your king unless you're ready to reap the consequences of that. And in general, you have to obey your father, at least until you're 18 years old. Yeah, I see some, some dads out there like, I wish you'd told that to my 17-year-old. But in general, right, you, when, when push comes to shove, you have to obey your father, your parents. But you choose to commit to your spouse. See the difference? No DNA, no power trip, no authority keeps you tethered to your spouse. It's only the love that you have for each other and the commitments you made to each other to do that. This is why marriage uniquely has vows. Doctors don't have parents go through vows when their child is born. And kings, likewise, don't have their subjects take vows when they come under their authority. But when you get married, there are vows. And there are several unique... Uh, things in this relationship uh, that you can't understand what God wants with you until you understand these things. You have to understand marriage. It doesn't mean you have to be married to get it, but you have to understand marriage. Because God says, everything that is true of marriage is true of my relationship to you. So here are a few implications of this, of this point, of this truth from Isaiah. First, God desires intimacy with us. He desires intimacy. Now we touched on that already. Marriage is incredibly intimate. Incredibly intimate. And intimacy is another way of describing the unique ability of spouses to know everything about you, even the things you don't want them to know about you, and even the things that you probably don't know about yourself. Because I can hide stuff from my friends, I can hide stuff from my boss, from my coworkers, and even from my kids to a certain extent, but with your spouse, you cannot get away with anything for very long. The relationship is too intimate, it's too close. And of course, if you, when you think about that, in the best marriages, this leads to a, a level of transparency that you really can't have with anyone else. You get comfortable around each other because you are so known. And an example of this in my own life is, when I'm at work, I don't, I don't walk around in my underwear, which should be a comfort to everyone here, but <laughs> when I'm at work, I don't walk around in my underwear. When I'm, with, uh, when I'm around my spouse, I don't think twice about it. And in general, she's okay with that. but <laughs> Because the relationship is intimate. She knows all my flaws and I know hers, but we're secure in that knowledge. Marriage is incredibly intimate and there's safety in that intimacy. So when God compares our relationship to him with a marriage... When he commands Hosea to get married in chapter 1, he's saying he wants to be intimately involved in every part of your life. He cannot be known at a distance. He wants proximity. He wants closeness. He knows everything about you, even the stuff that you don't know about you. And he wants you to spend the rest of your life getting to know him. He wants immediate access and the transparency that only a spouse can have with you. God wants that. Second, God desires intimacy. He also desires exclusivity with us. Exclusivity. Marriage is inherently exclusive. The strongest marriages make that relationship the most important one. It's exclusively at the top of the list. And everything else, everything else becomes negotiable in life. Everything else revolves around the marriage, from the very dramatic things in life to the very mundane things in life. When Becca and I got really serious and we were living in different cities, and we, and we knew that, I, I knew that at some point, one of us would need to make the dramatic decision to move to be with the other, whether that was Chicago with me or Washington, D.C. with her. I knew that my relationship with her, these dramatic decisions, I, she was the, the number one priority. Uh, what I didn't learn until much later was that I couldn't even make evening plans without my spouse, right? <laughs> the, the smallest decisions, you have to include your spouse, The marriage becomes the number one priority, and at the end of the day, it cannot make room for anyone else. Even children, the health of marriage trickles down to every other relationship. It's that central. And if the marriage is strong, everything else can be falling apart, but you know you're going to be okay. But if the marriage is weak, everything else can be going great. But you feel like you're a mess. God wants that exclusivity with you. He's not an add-on. He's not just there when you need him. He wants to be the number one priority, the relationship around which everything else in your life revolves. And if anything gets in the way, it's got to go for the sake of the marriage. God desires intimacy. He wants exclusivity with us too. And then finally, God wants his love to transform us. Transform us. Marriage has incredible transforming power over people. Marital relationships have a power over us that no other relationship really does. And your spouse's voice becomes the most important one in your life. And and this is why the way you speak to your spouse is so important. If you say something dumb to your friend, they can generally get over it quickly. If you say something dumb to your spouse, even something small, something hurtful the fallout can be devastating. And it can take several conversations to mend. And if it's bad enough, it can take years to fix. It has that much power. Likewise, your spouse can lift you up and define you in ways that no one else can do. For example, as nice as it is to hear from grandma, I love you. And I'm not diminishing that. It's true, that's that's good. But But it's totally different. To hear the person that you are in love with say for the first time, I'm in love with you. Totally different. When an acquaintance says you're a loving and kind person, it, it feels good. But when your wife says that, when your husband says that, and they mean it, it renews your strength, it buoys you up like nothing else can. Your spouse can heal you and mend you and define you like no one else. Their opinion of you trumps all others. If God is saying, I can have that kind of transforming power in your life. I can define you. I can make you beautiful. I can love you like no one else can. No matter what else is happening in your life, no matter what people say about you, no matter what's happening at your job, in your family, with your health, with your possessions, regardless of your ever-changing circumstances as a human being, I can define you. I will always see you as my perfect bride if you let me. And that knowledge, when we truly grasp it, can change everything. God is speaking here to the basic desire of every human heart to be known, and not just to be known, but to be loved and accepted anyway. It doesn't matter if you're married or single or you're young or you're old or you're a man or you're a woman, this is available to you. God wants to love you like that. He does. Until we grasp that and believe it, we will have no idea how God truly feels about us and what we could be together. God couldn't just tell us that. He commanded Hosea to get married to show us that. God wants to be married to you, and if only that were the end of this story. But it's not. Because our relationship with God isn't just like a marriage. In every case, with each one of us, our marriage with God is like a, it's like a broken marriage. This is the second thing Hosea teaches us. Our relationship with God is like a broken marriage. And if you look back at Hosea 1, verse 2, we said before it was startling, right, that God commands Hosea to get married. It's the first thing he tells him to do. What is perhaps more startling is who he asks him to marry. You probably read this already. He says, go take yourself a wife of whoredom, an adulterous wife. So God comes to Hosea, and he says, you see that woman over there? Her name is Gomer. Hosea, she is the one for you. Go marry her. And by the way, she is going to rip your heart out. She is going to destroy you. Now, insider information like that is only helpful if Hosea has a choice in the matter. But he doesn't. God is telling Hosea she is going to betray you and she's going to sleep around and she's going to break your heart but you've got to marry her because I'm married to my people and yet they commit great whoredom by forsaking me. That's what he says in verse 2. And Hosea learns right off the bat in his ministry and we do too that we aren't just married to God we, we are in a broken marriage. This is the basis of Hosea's ministry. This is the fundamental story of humanity and God. It boils down to the incredible heartache and pain that only a husband can feel toward his unfaithful wife. God is saying, you don't understand me, you don't get me, you don't understand what I'm going through when I try to love you until you have felt the pain when the person you love and cherish the most betrays you. Until you see... Our story, says God, our relationship, in that light, you will not understand sin, you will not understand grace, you will not understand heaven, you will not understand hell. You will get none of it until you get this. And Hosea goes through this so that we can get it. He marries Gomer, he has three children with her, and you know what the name of the third child is? It's lo in the Hebrew, which means not mine, not mine. Gomer almost immediately begins cheating on Hosea, and just as God says she would, and he's not even sure which kids are his and which aren't. But by the third one, he's pretty convinced. This child is not mine. And that alone seems bad enough, doesn't it? That's bad enough, but it's not over. Because Gomer's life quickly spins out of control, and eventually, we see in chapter 3, that Gomer's choice led her to hit rock bottom. That's the scripture we read Somehow, after who knows how many years of unfaithfulness, and after abandoning her family, Hosea finds out that Gomer is being sold into slavery. And it's like, how could it have gotten this bad? And there are a few ways in the ancient world that could have happened. The first is, Gomer might simply have fallen into insurmountable debt in her lifestyle, and uh, there was no declaring bankruptcy in the ancient world. So, to pay off your debt, you're often sold into slavery. Or, and I think this is more likely, she had taken a lover, she would taken many lovers, which we know for sure happened in chapter 3, that she loved another man. And this lover, this particular lover, was a pimp. And after prostituting herself with him and countless other people, lovers, her pimp is selling her because she's lost her marketability after who knows how long. Either way, this is just about as bad as it can possibly get. If there's ever a marriage... Doomed to failure, beyond all hope of repair, it's this one. And God is saying, in the midst of this story, this broken and ugly story, that this is a picture of what his relationship with human beings is like. He is saying, through this metaphor, this picture, that all unfaithfulness to him, all sin, all wrongdoing, all idolatry, whatever word you throw in there, is not simply disobedience, it is not simply insubordination it is not simply rebellion, it is adultery. It is cheating. And it doesn't just anger God, it destroys him. It breaks his heart. And when you read chapter 2 of Hosea, which is God just pouring his heart out about his unfaithful wife, you don't hear the rational coherence of a judge executing judgment. And you don't hear the pronouncement of a king on a throne. You hear the back and forth. You hear the up and down. You hear the pain of a husband who is beside himself with grief over what is happening. And some of you have felt that kind of pain in your life. Probably all of us have been near that kind of pain. And it's devastating. It is devastating. And God is saying, you don't get it. You don't get me until you understand the pain I'm going through to love you. And here we learn something more than just God's nature and God's feelings. Through this broken marriage, we learn something profound about our own nature as well. Because if Hosea represents God in this marriage, then Gomer represents us. We are the adulterers. We are the addicts. Because it's hard to understand Gomer's actions here unless we understand her as someone who struggles with some kind of sexual addiction. It's obviously a poor choice to commit adultery today. That's still generally frowned upon. In the ancient world, for a woman to commit adultery, it was social suicide. It was an offense punishable by death. And you would never get married again. You would never be accepted into mainstream society ever again. That was it. And yet Gomer seems unable to help herself. She willingly chooses a life of prostitution and public shame over a good marriage with three children. And we do the same thing. We choose the most momentary pleasure, the most fleeting satisfaction, the most hollow accolades over the eternal and unchanging love of God, our husband, almost every day. In Hosea chapter 3, God says that his people turn to other gods and they worship them instead of me. He's saying, what Gomer does, Hosea, in your life, my people do to me? And of course, all of these gods that he's referencing here in the ancient times, they represented things that we still run after and worship today. Things like sex or wealth or power or comfort or ease or achievement. They even represent good things, that can be turned into ultimate things that we worship. Things like wanting to get married more than anything else. Things like wanting children more than anything else. Things like wanting our health back more than anything else. Or to be physically desirable or beautiful. And all of these things we run after today. It's the same thing. And we almost can't help ourselves. And God is saying like a sexual addict, you adulterate with other gods instead of me. And they can't save you and they can't heal you. They're killing you, and you know it. You know it. We know it. I mean, think about it. Think about the things that keep you up at night with worry. Think about the things you daydream about. You can't help yourself. If you're like me, there are things like impressing people at work or achieving success or feeling secure about your finances or having the perfect family or being the best person that everyone likes. And yet each one of those things just teases us. We never have them. And we are only as good as our last project or our latest failure and we never get the the rest that we long for. We never find it. And the pleasure we get and the success or the wealth we get dissipates just as quickly as it comes and these things never satisfy the way we want them to and yet we run after them over and over and over again. This is the universal human experience. The things we want do not satisfy. And it's insane, isn't it? it's idiotic, it's crazy, it's addiction. It's addiction. And just like Gomer, we too find ourselves enslaved by these insatiable desires, and the Bible, the, the Bible calls idols. Because if addicts are anything, regardless of their drug of choice, if addicts are anything, they are slaves. And despite the inner emptiness that they feel when they engage in their addiction, return to it, they do, and we do. And until we see Hosea's story as our own and Gomer's story as our own, we will not understand how God feels about us, what is going on in his heart when we make certain choices, nor will we really understand ourselves, our own hearts, and why we feel this great emptiness in the things that we run after. And... Perhaps most importantly, we will never understand how God heals our broken marriage. This is the last lesson of Hosea, that God heals our broken marriage. So back in Hosea chapter 3, despite everything that has happened, and after Gomer really abandoned her husband and children, God has a final command for Hosea in verse 2. He says, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So Hosea went and bought her, bought her. Now the text is a little ambiguous here, but as we said before, the most likely explanation is that Gomer has been sold into slavery, and that Hosea has discovered her again at some kind of public auction. That's how slaves were sold in those days: tied to a post, mostly or completely naked and exposed, and sold to the highest bidder. That's how it worked. Now, just just put yourself in that moment. Think, can you imagine what Hosea is thinking when he sees his wife? He sees the woman that he loves, the mother of his children, who has hurt him so much. He sees her, she's so broken, she's so used, she's, she's so ashamed. She can't even look up. Can you imagine the torture that must, that must have been for him? Can you imagine the internal conflict he must have been feeling? To see the love of his life standing there at rock bottom, choosing this over him choosing this over his family and their children. And yet, God whispers to him, and I'm convinced the very moment he sees Gomer, God whispers to him, buy her back. Love her again. Because that is what I'm going to do. And so Hosea pays the price. He pays the price for her. He's 15 shekels of silver and some barley And I imagine he goes up to her, he covers her with his own garments and he speaks to her so sweetly. And here's essentially what he says in verse three. He says, you are mine again, just mine, Gomer. You do not need to run around ever again. My love is enough and it will always be here for you. We've got a lot to do to make this work, to make this better, but I promise to be yours forever. And he remarries her on the spot. And in this moment of intimacy that I think saves Gomer's life, in this moment of her salvation and finally finding rest in the love of her husband, God is saying, he is buying us back. He will heal our marriage just as Hosea did. And how does he do it? Where do we see God paying the price for our adultery? Well, It's no accident that in verse 5 of chapter 3, God says the people will return and seek King David. Now, even at Hosea's writing this, King David is dead. So who in the world is he talking about? Well, Jesus is the descendant of David that Hosea promises here. That is why he is called a son of David throughout the New Testament. But he's not simply the king we long for. He's the husband who pursues us, who loves us despite ourselves. It's no accident that the beginning of John's gospel in the New Testament, chapter 2, the first place Jesus goes to is not a synagogue. It is not a temple. It is not even to the marketplace to preach a sermon. It's, he, the first place Jesus goes is to a wedding. He goes to a wedding. It's as if Jesus is saying right off the bat that the controlling picture of his ministry is not of a conquering king like we might expect, but a bridegroom preparing a bride for a wedding. It's as if, in a real sense, everything Jesus is about to do in his life and in his death and in his resurrection is preparation for a wedding ceremony, and that is exactly what he's doing. When God sends his son Jesus into the world, he does so because he so loved the world as a husband loves his wife. So, it is, so, Jesus, it's Jesus who pays the price, who's sold into slavery for 30 pieces of silver. And it's Jesus who's stripped naked and publicly shamed. And it's Jesus who suffers the death penalty for our adultery. And it's Jesus who clothes us in his righteousness and sets captives free from spiritual addiction. And it's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who waits for us at the front of the aisle in Revelation chapter 21 at the end of time. And all the stains and the pain and the heartache of our adultery and of our unfaithfulness and of our addictions are gone forever in that moment in verse 2 of Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, I saw God's people coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband without blemish. Perfect. Yes, we all have a broken marriage with God, but in Jesus, God has purchased us back. And do you know what that means? It means that you cannot outsin God's love for you. You cannot outsin God's love for you. You can try to divorce God all you want, but he will never stop pursuing you. He will never stop loving you. It means that unlike any human marriage, even the best human marriages, God can see into your heart. He can see everything you've done, everything you are capable of, every mistake that you have ever made or ever will make. And he can look at the ugliness inside you that you can barely acknowledge. He can look at that dead in the eye and say, you are my bride. You are my spouse. I will love you forever if you accept what Jesus has done for you. He can do that. How much does God love you? Hosea answers this question. He points to his own marriage and he points to the son of God pierced for our transgressions and he says this much, this much. The story of a marriage healed is available to anyone with eyes to see on the cross, not simply an innocent man suffering and not simply a God judging sin, but a loving husband wooing back buying back his beloved bride. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that we run after so many things when we are honest with ourselves besides you. God, I pray this image of your son pursuing us, dying for us, would always demonstrate to us when we doubt it how much, how deeply, how permanently you love us. I pray this in his name. Amen.